Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 2018, and my guest is business consultant, educator, and author Neil Monnery. He is director of Ashridge Strategic Management Center at Halt International Business School. Before that, he was the senior vice president and director at the Boston Consulting Group. Group. His latest book is Architect of Prosperity, Sir John Cowperthwaite, and the Making of Hong Kong, which is our subject for today. Neil, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. So why did you think to write this book? Most of us have never heard of John Carpenter. Um, he's not famous in the least. He perhaps deserves to be. And uh, what caused you to think about writing it? And what did it take to actually write it, given that there's not a lot of other biographies of the man? In, indeed, I think it's the only one. So, uh, <laughs> well, I, I came across, uh, probably like you, I was worried after the great crash as to uh, the problems that are caused by not having enough growth in the world. And I wanted to see whether there were areas, countries and the like, which had overcome that and had good levels of growth. And I came across Hong Kong. And as I learned more about Hong Kong, this name, Cooperthwaite, uh, Cooperthwaite, keeps coming up as the person who's responsible for the economic policies uh, and who really set the course for Hong Kong. And that's what got me interested in it. So a little background on on Hong Kong and Cowperthwaite. It's it's about uh, a thousand square miles. It's yeah. the size of Rhode Island for those of you in America. It's about three times bigger than New York City's five boroughs. It's about fifty times the size of Manhattan. And I was surprised at this. In my mind, it's just a little tiny rock with a lot of tall buildings, but it has some actual uh, land space. Its yeah. population, if, tell me if I got this right, at the end of World War II was about 600,000. Well, it collapsed during the Second World War II from, from about a million before to down to 600,000, yeah. And now is about 7.5 million. Um, yeah, that's right. It's about 3 million in 1960. So for those of us who don't have much background in the history of the island – um, you know, I know it was basically British, and now it's Chinese. Uh, talk about how it was run during the crucial period we're going to be talking about, which is post-World War II uh, until uh, the handover to the Chinese. Well, it, it became a British colony in about 1840, in the 1840s, um, really in many ways to support trade with China and, and particularly the opium trade. But in the period we're talking about, it was a, a if you like, a standard British colony uh, run by a governor, uh, supported by uh, a set of civil servants, uh, many of whom um, were, uh, some of whom were sitting on the executive committee. And then there were also unofficial members of of the executive committee, and those are people who are appointed by the governor, uh, typically local Chinese businessmen or, or something like that, uh, who would balance out and give a, a, a bit of a sense as to what the uh, local people thought, because it's, it was not a democracy in the normal sense of the word. It was um, a colony run by a governor. And what kind of economic activity is there? Today, it's famous for its banking and financial sector. Uh, I was surprised to learn how economically active it was post-World War II, uh, doing lots of other things. 
Yeah, it, I mean, it, because of that original uh, basis of being a, um, an entrepot really for Chinese trade, that's where the first hundred years of, of, of the economy were. Tell, um, tell, tell our listeners what an entrepot is. It's a, it's a <laughs> word that doesn't crop up much in American English. Right, so it's it's basically a trading hub. Uh, so people trading, wanting to get stuff out of China or getting stuff into China, would use it for warehousing, shipping, uh, breaking goods, things like that. Um, uh, and and from that, it ha- it started to build uh, adjacent activities like shipbuilding and insurance and and so on. Uh, but in fact, most of that trade ended. Um, with, with on, a lot of it ended with China when America uh, imposed sanctions on trade with China uh, during the Korean War. So uh, that, uh, that, in a sense, destroyed that business. And Hong Kong moved very quickly into trying to build a manufacturing base, uh, predominantly in things like textiles, but wig-making, enamelware, and so on. And then it moved into electronics in the later 60s. Um, became very powerful in uh, radios and uh, television and so on. And then it's, as you say, it's ended up being uh, now very much an advanced financial services and other services economy. We used an interesting language back uh, a minute ago. I don't know, I I don't think you intended to, but it's a common language that we always use in these kind of contexts. It's somewhat misleading. You said Hong Kong then moved into or you may have even said uh, – I don't yeah. think you said decided, but but you implied it was sort of a top-down decision. And, of course, one of the themes of your book is that there's remarkably little economic planning of the uh, standard kind. Uh, mm-hmm. So the things you're talking about, the move to textiles, the move to electronics, those were the result of the independent decisions of hundreds or thousands of entrepreneurs and, and business people, many, many or most, I guess almost all, Chinese. Very much so. So, so that is absolutely right. That um, at various points, people in government or people in business suggested that it would be good to have some top-down planning to see which sectors they wanted to move into, or whether or not they'd uh, grown certain sectors too far, and, and therefore they should be constrained in some way. And really, uh, that was the battle of ideas that Cowperthwaite was so strong on and really set the course for Hong Kong not doing that in a top-down fashion, but rather allowing uh, the various entrepreneurs, the people who are deploying their own capital to make those decisions as to where to invest, some of which worked, some of which didn't work, uh, but very much a bottom-up entrepreneurial system um, and also very much allowing the you know the creative destruction of those industries that no longer uh, were were competitively advantaged because uh, Capethwaite was always being um, assailed by various people who wanted him to intervene uh, into uh, supporting one one sector or another, and he um, pretty much always turned them away and said, you know, if it's a good industry, it'll work, and if it's a bad a bad industry, it won't work. So uh, it's really nothing to do with me, and that and that was a very powerful stance. Uh, through that period of the 50s, 60s, and and so on afterwards. In one piece of that economic history, I want to make sure I mention, and then we'll turn to Cowperthwaite's role uh, in his various duties over this time post-war period. But one fascinating uh, thing that happens uh, over this time period is that Hong Kong becomes a very, very important exporter of of textiles and yarn and and um, and various stuff for making clothes, and gets makes political challenges for the two great leaders of free trade in the post-war era, the United States and, and the United Kingdom. And yet, 
uh, they, of course, violate, as they often do, their own so-called free trade principles uh, for domestic political reasons to protect, uh, in the case of England, I think, is it Lancashire or Lancashire, yeah. Lancashire. And yeah. then in America, I'm sure it was the Carolinas and uh, in that period, probably, although it still could be some textile activity in New England, but I think most of it moved to the Carolinas by that point. Yeah. And so here, this irony, the two leaders of the so-called free trade era are putting tremendous pressure in this during this time to limit Hong Kong's exports. Mm-hmm. And Hong Kong although it wants to not do that, is forced by its relative uh, lack of power, even though it's a Hong, even though it's a British colony, uh, domestic British political uh, import is such that, right, bad word, uh, significance is such that uh, they have to be, uh, they have to deal with quotas in both the United States and England. That's right. I mean, the textile industry really started up in the in in the late 1940s, uh, as China itself turned to Mao and to communism. Many of the uh, entrepreneurs in that sector decided to relocate into uh, Hong Kong, or a number of them did, and and they brought with them skills and um, machinery and understanding. And that industry started to grow very rapidly. Uh, and um, as you as you rightly point out, both the UK and the US had large uh, heritage uh, textile industries, uh, which were complaining continuously around uh, how how could Hong Kong do it? And they came up with the most remarkable set of uh, <laughs> hypotheses as to you know they were doing it but losing money or they were cheating in some way. Uh, whereas the reality was they were simply you know using more efficient machinery and using it more hours per day and, and, and the like. But that put, as you say, a huge amount of pressure on the British and the American political system because they had to stay true to their involvement with GATT and, and later the World Trade Organization. Um, and so they had to get Hong Kong to voluntarily agree to limitations in uh, their exports, um, which which was was not so straightforward. But uh, Harold Macmillan in the in the UK in the 1960s um, was very... Uh, concerned about that and Kennedy in the US um, who was uh, running for election and then getting elected was very concerned also to keep that textile constituency so you're right these great bastions of free trade when it comes to the crunch not surprisingly uh, find it very difficult to navigate a political and economic uh, course through these difficulties of uh, of, of dislocation of the domestic industries. There's a certain irony there obviously and there's another irony which is that in many ways, Hong Kong is is between a rock and a hard place. One of those is China. <laughs> the other is yeah. uh, the UK, which is, I don't know, 12,000 miles away, 15, I don't know how far, a long way away, yeah. depending on which well, way you no. go. Uh, but they're, it, it's even though they're snug up against China, they are involved with the rest of the world because of the nature of, of their economic activity. Um, yeah, very a very open economy uh, connected um, to, to to markets throughout the world, but as you say, um, from a from a political stand, standpoint, in this difficult position of being a British colony, and in a way even worse, a British colony that had a had a clock ticking on it because there had been an agreement to hand back uh, the the uh, key parts of Hong Kong to China in in 1997, and so as time was passing through the 60s and 70s. 
people were increasingly concerned about what that would mean uh, as as Hong Kong would get returned to China. Uh, so yes, a very a very complicated political situation and uh, one which uh, required uh, a certain amount of um, dexterity amongst the governor and uh, senior civil servants and so on in Hong Kong to manage politically. Yeah, I would just mention one of my favorite lines from your book was uh, that that 1997 handover was negotiated in 1897. Yes. I, I can't I, – I wrote this down somewhere. I can't seem to find the exact quote. But 1897, the, the British negotiator decided on 100 years because 100 years is like forever. But yes. in 1995 or 1975 uh, – that was definitely not the case. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Seemed like a great idea at the time, but yeah. uh, uh, for the people actually left dealing with it a hundred years later, it was uh, clearly a great a, a great pressure in how to how to manage into the system that has evolved uh, since 1997. And for the last bit of background, tell us about Mr. Cowperthwaite himself. Uh, mm. He was Scottish, uh, and tell us what his responsibilities were in Hong Kong and when and when he retired and. Um, Give us some yeah. background on the man. He he uh, he came from a middle class family uh, who'd been involved in things like a tax collection and surveying and so on in Scotland. Uh, a lot of the people in, involved in uh, running the British Empire bizarrely came from Scotland, um, and uh, he he was one of them. He was a, a very bright guy. He he read uh, classics, Latin and Greek. Uh, at St. Andrew's University, got a first. He then read the same again at um, Cambridge, got that a first again. Getting a first means good for those means uh, super for good. Americans. Yeah, <laughs> super good. Uh, so he, he did very well. He, he could read uh, Greek and Latin texts uh, directly, and he did through the rest of his life, as well as also reading uh, French texts in, in uh, uh, 18th century French and so on. So he, he was very educated. And I think if it hadn't been for the Second World War, he would probably have ended up as a classics teacher uh, at a university or a leading private school. Uh, but the Second World War intervened, and um, he uh, he then ended up um, applying to become uh, a part of the civil service cadet, uh, the, the Hong Kong Cadet Corps, which is a very elite form of uh, civil servants who are marked out for fast promotion and the like. He, he fortunately was on his way to Hong Kong uh, as it got uh, captured by Jap the, the Japanese, and so he didn't end up in Hong Kong, otherwise he probably would have been interned for the whole of the war, um, but instead arrived in 1945 as, uh, as Japan uh, gave the, surrendered and gave the colony back to Britain. And his first job, or his first substantial job, was to try and get industry uh, back on its feet and to get supplies coming in uh, to the uh, colony. And so he spent a lot of time actually running a department which um, uh, was involved in trading, involved in purchasing uh, rice, uh, fuel and the like. And I think that was a very formative influence for him later on in his life to see how difficult it was for a set of uh, civil servants to run a trading business and the like. Um, he then became Deputy Financial Secretary, which is Finance Minister effectively, uh, between 1951 and 1961. And then he was Financial Secretary between 1961 and 1971. So for about 25 years, he was absolutely central to the economic policy formulation uh, that was going on in Hong Kong. 
uh, both because of his role, but also because of his intellect and his, uh, his strength of uh, feeling about what the right approach was for Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong is famous for its free market policies. It's been held up by Milton Friedman and others as an exemplar of, of, of sort of a minimal, laissez-faire, uh, Adam Smithian uh, state. And one of the things I was surprised about in reading your book was how interventionist they were. Now, it turns out they're not so interventionist, but relative to what I had sort of believed or been told, and I, you know, this is where my own biases come in. I, being a free market person, I've always liked the idea that Hong Kong's free market policies explain their great explosive growth. Uh, but it's a little more complicated. So give us a summary of the role of government in this post-war period, say, of, of Copperthwaite's involvement, say, obviously right after the war, there were some price controls, those those go away. But yeah. once that we, we've gotten past the worst of the uh, post-war era, the devastate we've recovered, they've recovered from the devastation of the war and, and the island was was devastated. Uh, and and a lot of the economic infrastructure was destroyed. Once that starts to come back, try to describe how active or inactive uh, government was. And of course, there's an irony here, which is that here's a bunch of, quote, experts running the uh, the place by not running it <laughs> or by running it less than elsewhere. Or So tell us, give us a feel for how much running it they were doing. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that's um, probably stri- striking you uh, from reading the book, Hassan, is that there are certain sectors where they get quite, a large amount of involvement in different ways. So, for example, <clears throat> Hong Kong doesn't have the ability to collect enough water. And so, fresh water, there aren't enough supplies. So, there, there needs to be a huge uh, effort to uh, build reservoirs and uh, water collection uh, facilities and the like. And the government becomes quite involved, typically in a regulatory basis, on some of that. And they're involved in things like telephone, um, uh, the telephone structure, because they view, view those as natural monopolies. But in terms of the uh, normal trading economy, um, uh, trading, uh, manufacturing, services, uh, and the like, there there's relatively light involvement, um, usually possibly some some level of regulation, um, but even that is generally relatively light, uh, and it's some places that gets them into problems in, for example, banking. But uh, by and large, it's a relatively light involvement in that and allows that part of the economy to uh, operate through markets, either domestic markets, or because Hong Kong has always been a free port and there's no import uh, duties or tariffs, um, the world market was obviously very important in many sectors and provided the discipline for uh, efficiency and uh, moving forward, uh, for example, the, the export of textiles to the, the to the US and to the European Union as we were talking about so there's a there all of those sorts of parts of the economy are are very much more uh, left in the hands of the entrepreneurs um, uh, and and like everywhere I suppose there's a growing uh, provision of some uh, of the social elements education health and the like although that in Hong Kong in 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 general that has been slower in terms of that provision um, being put in place uh, than it has been elsewhere. And indeed, one of Cooperthwaite's uh, 
key points is really to try and ensure that that's affordable uh, and that that's built relatively slowly over time rather than um, being, for example, uh, put in place through deficit financing and the like. So I think overall, it's. It, I think it would still be fair to say it's quite a, uh, you know, a government light or has been quite a, light, a government light economy. Uh, about fifteen percent of GDP, fifteen to twenty percent of GDP, uh, was uh, spent by the government over the sort of period we're talking about today. That's uh, probably, I guess, thirty to thirty-five percent in the U.S. and typically forty to fifty percent in Europe. So it's still there, but um, it's it's uh, uh, much smaller. I mean, Cooperthwaite was not an anarchist. He he did believe that there should be a government and that it should have certain important roles um, in in terms of uh, providing, um, you know, rule of law, uh, basic support uh, for people in need uh, and the likes. But but it was at a at a smaller scale than was happening certainly at that time in Europe. And the tax system is there's a ton of little taxes, which he abolishes a bunch of them. Whenever they run a surplus, uh, he, he gets rid of a tax on televisions or whatever it is. But yeah. the the larger, more significant tax is there's an income tax, correct? That's Is it a flat tax above a certain amount? Is that the right description? Uh, it's a it's a tax which uh, tops out at fifteen percent uh, income tax during this period, or, or lower, uh, rising over the time we're talking about to around fifteen percent. Um, and if you earn less than that, you could pay both a lower rate, and of course, uh, about half the population don't pay income tax at all. So um, there's a there's a sort of level you need to earn. Uh, and one of the interesting things about the Hong Kong tax system throughout this period and and up to now is you get a separate tax on your income and then you get a different tax on property uh, earnings which bears no relationship it's not consolidated into your income uh, earning part and the like so you have different schedules for tax which uh, means that the overall tax rate is 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 much lower because you get an allowance on each one and by the way, that's not much different than the United States today, although it's a little oh, bit misleading. Right. About a third to a half, depending on how you define the denominator, whether you're looking at tax returns or actual people, pay no income tax in the United States. They do pay payroll tax, though, quite quite a bit. Right. Uh, all workers do in the United States. Uh, they're lied to and told that that's to pay for their Social Security. In fact, it goes into the government coffers and is spent out the door. Yeah. Um, pardon me for that crude honesty there. Um, but there's no payroll tax in Hong Kong, if I'm correct. And the other part that I found extremely interesting, I wish you'd gone into more detail, is that even though the government's providing, say, education or health care, it's not providing it universally, and it's often charging for it. So even though the government schools, their government-run schools, they are there's a fee. And because I, I, I know that because you mentioned at one point they cut it in half when things or times mm. are good. And let's talk a little bit about how Cowperthwaite, and by the way, you pronounced it now Cowperthwaite and Cowperthwaite. But <laughs> yes, yeah. Because you mentioned before we started recording that it's not 100% clear what his actual name is. But uh, Mr. Thwaite, people have used yeah, that. Mr. Cowperthwaite, uh, he was very insistent on not uh, providing welfare to the middle class and the rich. Uh, through government services. 
I think I think that's absolutely one of his key beliefs. He he was passionately concerned with helping the most needy in society, uh, but was very worried that if uh, that started creeping into providing a lot of support for uh, middle-income people, that would both create incentive problems, uh, but would also slow the growth rate. And his logic went something like this, which is, you know, Hong Kong is clearly over this period a developing economy. Um, he believes that if uh, entrepreneurs are left with enough income to uh, in surplus to reinvest in new opportunities, that will push up the growth rate uh, going forward. And therefore, if he starts taxing that in order to provide free education for um, for the middle classes, then that will be at the expense of future growth, which he sees as central to uh, his his mission, if you like, to try and uh, push the growth rate up in, in, in Hong Kong. So education is actually, the, in a way, the most dramatic uh, because he, he, he at one point says, you know, he believes education is a very good thing, but even, a, even good things have to be paid for. And so his strong preference is not to provide universal um, universally free education or indeed anything else, but rather to charge market prices and then to give complete subsidies to the most needy so that there's very targeted use of uh, state funds. Tax, taxation is very well targeted onto those needy at the most. He, he at various points loses that battle and indeed lost that battle in, in due course in education. Uh, but he, his starting point is nearly always to say, well, let's try and be clear about what the market costs of these things are and try as far as possible to put that into the market price. Uh, but whilst getting uh, uh, subsidies or, or grants for those who are most in need and who couldn't otherwise afford it. It it also affects, for example, his. You know, he has a very interesting uh, set of arguments about water provision. Coming back to water, um, which you know, if you if you want twenty four hour water provision in in Hong Kong uh, in the fifties and sixties, uh, that's a very much more expensive. A set of capital expenditure that would be needed than if you wanted, say, water provision at four or five or six hours of the day. And he's he says, well, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that it's the right aim to have 24-hour water provision. That's a huge amount of resource that we would be expending on that. And it would make it, at market prices, unaffordable for the least well-off in our society. So he, he would much prefer, for example, even on something like water provision, to say, well, let the state uh, intervene to try and ensure that there's some basic level that can be afforded by even the most needy in society, and then allow the market and private forces to provide things that are beyond that. Uh, and almost all his battles in defining the you know, the the envelope of the state are, are around those sorts of issues about who, who should be getting it, how much should they be getting, is there a way to do it, uh, while still allowing market forces to work. I'm going to read a quote from him. I'm going to read some quotes later as well, but this one's <clears throat> related to what you just mentioned. He says the following, uh, I find myself considered inhumane or unprogressive or sometimes merely odd by some of my colleagues as well as members of the public when I suggest that it is not axiomatic that a 24-hour supply in all circumstances must be our immediate aim, I cannot myself see any grounds for the belief that a 24-hour domestic water supply is an inalienable right of civilized man. It may be if he can afford it and is prepared to pay the price. So that gives you, you know, as, as you as you yeah. mentioned, it gives you a really good look into his. Uh, philosophy of of government very very odd by, and unprogressive <laughs> by modern even but even his day which i think is what's 
one of the fascinating things about the book is that he's espousing a fairly limited view of government at a time when the world is very much turning toward first deficit spending for counter-cyclical activity as well to help get rid of recessions or downturns, as well as an increasing role for government, especially in his home uh, market of the United Kingdom where government is nationalizing, becoming much more socialistic. And he's standing really athwart the tide of of economic history. So even though – what what, yes. I, what I found fascinating about the book is that even though it isn't the free market paradise I think it's been portrayed by some, it, relative to the rest of the world, it's way out of step. Exactly. And, and, and the important thing is he's not doing it just because he's mean or, or uh, unkind in any way. Uh, he's doing it because he believes that – if the state, uh, the the level of spending um, that the state is engaged with is lower, that will enable more funds to stay in the private sector, and he hopes and believes that those will be reinvested in good uh, capital projects, and through that, economic growth will be higher. And therefore, his 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 belief is that uh, by being constrained in the near term, you can have a set of positive effects in the longer term, uh, and. He's very struck by the power of, uh, you know, compounding and the like, and uh, therefore understands that if he can get the growth rate a bit higher, that will have great effects for wages over the long term, um, great effects for employment. I mean, if, if, if you remember, this is the time when China is going through its cultural revolution uh, with a lot of um, refugees turning up on the doorstep in Hong Kong every day. And he's worrying about, well, how do I get him? You know, how are we as a society going to employ these people and uh, how are they going to find a role? And so he's really got a very different um, trade-off or set of preferences, whereas I think the modern politician wants to give satisfaction now on a wide range of issues. He's sort of saying, well, actually, if we hold back on that, uh, we may be able to get higher levels of growth than we would otherwise have. And we sort of need those to deal with the large influx of people, to deal with the aspirations, to deal with the long-term spending that we as a society would want to have. Just as an aside, we recently had an episode uh, with Frank DeCotter on uh, Mao's Great Famine, which is mm. roughly this – I've heard it. It's during this period, and it's right uh, – 1961, I think they're yes, coming exactly. out of the famine. But but Copperthwaite's involved before that, during it, after. And just a technical question. How easy or hard was it to get into Hong Kong during this time period? What were the immigration uh, – I'm sure there were a lot more people who wanted to get get there than could, but a lot did. So, how was that managed? Uh, it went it went through it went through swings. Uh, so, at various points uh, prior prior, obviously, to the Cultural Revolution, it was relatively easier uh, to to get into Hong Kong. It has a long land land border um, with with China at that time, uh, but it tightened up enormously because there was a huge wave during the cultural, as, as, as you know from that uh, podcast. I mean, the effect on people in China of the Cultural Revolution was 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 very worrying, um, uh, with many people dying and of starvation and the like, and so there was a great demand to try, try and get into Hong Kong. Um, so that was managed uh, as best they could. Uh, but- Actually, technically, I think it it's it's actually the great leap forward that leads to the famine. Yeah. The Cultural Revolution is the, the next iteration yeah, of right. Mao's yeah. Sorry, grand right. yeah. um, 
stuff. But but Copperthwaite's in there during that too, so it's all relevant. Yeah, yeah. So so that's right. He, I mean, the first one, of course, was the <laughs> the hundred flowers campaign in '56, where where Mao said he'd like to get sort of feedback, but then he didn't really like the feedback he got, so that that sort of ended. Um, and then there was the Great Leap Forward. Um, which was the, the more worrying one, and then than the Cultural Revolution. But I, I think it's very it's obviously a fascinating contrast between what's going on in Hong Kong at that time, um, where just a few miles away across uh, you know that border at that point, uh, there's a very different set of policies being enacted. So you you can contrast the uh, you know the, the success, if you like, over this period in Hong Kong with some of the issues that China had at that time. And, of course, there is a selection bias. Hong Kong's getting yeah. somewhat. I mean, it's not obvious which way it goes because Hong Kong's getting both the most entrepreneurial people, probably, because there's very little scope for entrepreneurial activity in China at this time. Mm. But they're also getting just poor, pitiful people who are getting abused. Now, of course, as you say, there were different times they could get in and out. It was harder for them to get in. Um all this raises a fascinating question, which uh, we could spend the rest of the time on. I don't want to, but it, but it, it needs to be mentioned, which is the following. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm an American. I've been to uh, I've been to England, and when I go, I, I'm struck by how uneasy young young people are with the uh, colonial heritage of of British policy. So, for mm-hmm. example, my you know my favorite example of this I've mentioned on the year before is the British Museum. It's uh, it's basically the, the, the it's a bunch of looting and, and theft that the British <laughs> yeah. army uh, did over armed forces did over time. And but it, that's the bad that's the embarrassing downside part. Shameful. Um, uh, the positive thing is they've preserved it all for the world and displayed it in a magnificent way is why they refuse to give back the uh, Elgin marbles, if that's how you pronounce Elgin. Uh, it's the, which are the Greek um, uh, sculptures from the um, Parthenon. I think I have that right. Mm, I think I think that's right. Um, but anyway, uh, it's magnificent, and it's also not so nice uh, that England has become the storehouse of cultural um, history. At the same time. In its administration of its various colonies, well, in the United States, you know, we, we didn't like it, so we had a revolution and, and we got quote mm-hmm. freedom. Other places took a lot longer. A lot of people died along the way. There were wars. There was bad policy. Um, some people defended it as a form of a paternalistic necessity because the rest of the world was too uncivilized. And we look back on that now, most Westerners, I think, with shame. Which is understandable. And yet, in Hong Kong, there's, um, as far as I can tell, in this period that we're talking about, we're now talking about 1850 when England mm-hmm. waged war against China and took stuff, which is yeah. horrible, uh, like Hong Kong. But in the administration itself, I kept thinking, what were they, what were they trying to do? What was their, you know, in economics, so what were they maximizing? What were their goals? Mm-hmm. Uh, was it to... It sounds like it was to raise the living standards of the people who live there, which makes mm-hmm. – and they were not a democracy. They did have this – the unofficials, uh, the the advisory board, but they were just an advisory board. Um, what was it? Benign 
dictatorship? Was it uh, kind-hearted? It's weird to be reading about Mr. Cowperthwaite, who's the a bureaucrat's bureaucrat, mm. uh, a great mind, but still he's just he's he's running the economy maybe with a very light hand, but but he's not trying to get reelected, so he doesn't have to kowtow to anybody. And yet, you'd have to ask, you know, what was success for him, and and who who was his? What were incentives did he face? It's a long, mm. rambling intro question. So respond to that no, any way you'd like. But, but I think you're right. There's a there's a, there's a mix of unease about some of the elements of uh, certainly uh, earlier um, colonialism, uh, and that and that at one level also pans out into this period. And we we have a I think a uh, uh, unease about that, and also unease about the um, limited democracy that existed in Hong Kong. But I think there's also an interesting, exactly as you're saying, there's an interesting element of the story, particularly over this period, where I, I think, having you know read through the archives and so on, I think there were mostly quite good motives um, from the people involved. You you can obviously argue whether they should have been involved and whether there should have uh, been more self determination and, and and so on earlier on. But I think actually many of the motives of people like Capethwaite and various governors at various points are are to try and do uh, a good job for the Hong Kong people in a fairly clear and uh, a fairly a fairly clear way and and often when they clash with uh, the British government or with uh, senior politicians or senior British civil servants located in Britain uh, they very much take the side of the Hong Kong People, the long-term side of the Hong Kong people, and and that causes a lot of problems over over time because they they actually uh, you know on for example how much how much people locally should pay for defence uh, they would have complete arguments with the British civil service saying well we you know we don't think local people here should pay that much and, and so on so they definitely had created perhaps a little bit for themselves uh, a, a bit of an objective uh, to try and do well for the Hong Kong people and maximize the progress of that society. Um, but as you, as you say, very much in an enabling and facilitating way. That's not to say that, uh, you know, that was true, obviously, as you were saying, that's, that is obviously not true at all times and in all places. Uh, for in India, British. say, you know, or places yeah. where... There was enormous resource resource extraction, yeah, or yeah, yeah. So this is definitely not an attempt to try try and say you know, this is a good model of government or anything. This is um, this is simply saying you know here's an interesting period where there's a, quite a stable economic policy for some odd reasons as it happens, um, but here's what happens because you know of that economic policy being stable uh, uh, for for the fifty years or so that it has been. Um, and, and it is a slightly odd set of circumstances that have allowed such stability in economic policy. But that is what gives it sort of part of the interest in terms of the natural experiment that came out of that. So you think about, say, China in 1850 and, and England in 1850 versus China in 1950 and England in 1950. Mm. In, in a later period, I mean, China was a very unmodern country in 1850. It, it had had an enormous, um, probably high standard of living relative to the rest of the world for a while. Then it closed itself off from the rest of the world. At least this is my simple narrative. And they kind of yeah. stagnated. And the rest of the world, 
had the Industrial Revolution, and all of a sudden we're in 1950, and finally China gets some – it's a big place, and it's yeah. hard to run a country. You don't really run China in any real sense. Even today, I'm not sure you can run China. And I'm not talking about the economy. I'm just talking about just figuring out what's going on where, given the state of technology and and and, and understanding. But at some point, it, it's pretty clear that Mao is is in charge, and that China is a growing or wants to be a growing power in the world. And it's weird that they didn't just take the island over. Now I know they don't want a war with with England in 1950 or 1960, but when you talk about the defense of the island, you know, what is it? Does the, Brit- does the British fleet sit near there to try to do – could it do anything if China had just no. said, we want it? No, I, th- I think uh, after so, – so prior to nine- – Prior to the Second World War, there was uh, the concept to defend it. But uh, Churchill, before the Second World War, uh, um, knew perfectly well that Hong Kong was indefensible. Um, uh, you know, at that point from Japan, but the same is the same is true later on from China. And if China had wanted to take it back by force, really, after after the Second World War, that would have been possible. So, uh, I don't think it would have been defendable. Um, and and uh, at the at that time we were talking about in terms of the uh, cultural revolution the beginning of the cultural revolution in the sort of 66 67 period uh the british government even sort of prepared a plan as to how they would uh, evacuate hong kong um and uh, retreat from hong kong should that happen uh china also had power for example to cut off the water supply uh, and the like so that you know it was a, a fairly precarious uh, situation and required um, having China at least on side, or at least to the you know to the extent they didn't want to invade uh, in that period of you know let's say 1960 onwards. So in 1850, uh, I understand that you, know, you wanted to sell stuff into China and you wanted to take stuff from China, tea and other things. But yeah. in 1950, you start to think the I mean, I start thinking, why does England care? And one of the reasons well, but, it's such but, a well, remember, they don't. I mean, in in, in most of the so in the nineteen fifty, the fifties and sixties, Britain is uh, getting out. It's retreating. It's it yeah. retreating. So it, it's 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 uh, you know, Hong Kong is the only east of Suez, uh, as, it, as the phrase was, mm-hmm. uh, major colony that it remains. Uh, Singapore uh, is um, it, you know is, is given independence, as are most other. Uh, places uh, leaving really just Hong Kong. So again, it's a, it's an anomaly uh, in many ways that that uh, re- was retained, and I think that's partly because of the original treaties that said it would be British until 1997, uh, and also the strength of feeling in Hong Kong um, and the number of people in Hong Kong who did not wish to at that yeah. point. Do British not wish or Chinese, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, so I, I think it is an anomaly, and it was, you know, it, it's therefore something that ran its course for longer than uh, most most uh, colonies uh, did, um, uh, rather than you know part of a, a grand plan, if you like. <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> in that period, it's funny. You were, when I was talking about the British colonial period, I was I was thinking in the back of my mind of the white man's burden, the Rudyard Kipling poem, and when you say <laughs> right. east of Suez. Kipling doesn't get enough exposure on Econ Talk, so I'm going to do this from memory. I can't. Um, I'm going to. You're going to help. Maybe you'll help me. The the line in it's from the Road to Mandalay. I think he says, "Send me somewhere east of Suez, where the best is like the worst, where there ain't no Ten Commandments and a man can raise a thirst." 
right? So th- there was oh, a period. I'm very Thank you. Well, I could be cheating. You don't really know, but <laughs> yeah, I you'll have to trust so, me. Yeah. But the and I could remember Ten Commandments until I started reciting it. But uh, there was a different time. Suez being, of course, in Egypt, uh, east of Suez, which was India, uh, uh, all the other areas, Sing- Singapore, Hong Kong, what, lots yeah. of British activity east of Suez. Uh, so um, very I different. Think, I think, interestingly, actually, I, I would speculate that America actually was much keener that Britain retain Hong Kong. Oh, I bet you're right. Um, because <laughs> it's power. I mean, the largest consulate that America had in the world was Hong Kong um, at that time. So I, I think there was probably some listening activity going on. Uh, yeah, you said they had the a lot of employees. We They probably weren't just stamping things. They probably weren't, no. So so I, I think that at that at that time, where, where if you remember, the, the reason for mentioning Suez was obviously America didn't support Britain and France when Britain and France uh, tried to retake control of Suez. And that led to, the, if, if you like, the, the strategic inability to retain the empire east of yeah. Suez. Uh, but I think America had a slightly different view on, on the value of, of, of Hong Kong. So, uh, you know, there was a, a slightly different answer for that. And I encourage listeners to watch the first season of The Crown, uh, oh, yeah. where the Suez Canal uh, crisis is is covered in some detail. I don't know how accurate it is. I think it's pretty accurate. I think uh, it is, as far as I know, quite accurate. It's a great program, by the way. Uh, I love it. Yeah, I have really no good. interest in British royalty, and I found it um, – I couldn't stop watching. I know. I, I thought, who on yeah. earth would make a who would make a series of this? But right. actually, it's compulsive. Yeah, it's <laughs> tremendous. Anyway, uh, back to back to Mr. Carper's yeah. Um One of the most entertaining uh, parts of the book is the uh, is the dog that doesn't bark. The dog that doesn't bark. In this case, I, I keep waiting while I'm reading your book, and I'm thinking, when's he going to talk about? GDP and growth <laughs> and, and some measurement of you know he's, he, as you say he's very focused on growth and I think actually was whether you know sometimes people say one thing and don't do it don't do it but uh, he was focused on growth um, and I couldn't understand why you didn't give us any data and then I came to this passage uh, which I have to confess I love dearly. Uh, this is a quote from the book. Throughout his time in government, Cowperthwaite refused to compile and distribute official data for economic output. <laughs> for most of his tenure as financial secretary, he simply batted away requests for the data. When Milton Friedman visited Hong Kong in the early 1960s, he asked Cowperthwaite why there was such limited information on national income. And then you quote uh, uh, Friedman and Friedman, which I think is free to choose, and it. Right, Cowperth, which I think is Friedman, Cowperthwaite explained that he had resisted requests from civil servants to provide such data because he was convinced that once the data was published, there would be pressure to use them for government intervention in the economy. Mm. That's right. He he um, he was constantly under pressure because if uh, if you remember, GDP type statistics started to become common common currency just before the Second World War. And um, since, as you say, he, he he was articulating that he was interested in growth, people not not unrealistic, uh, not not uh, unfairly said, "Well, can you give me some measurement of, of that?" To which he, yeah, he said, "Absolutely, you know, not." And he said so he he did the, a very bureaucratic wheeze. He got some poor academic. Um, oh yeah. 
whose, <laughs> whose name I, I can't remember. But he said, uh, uh, no, I'm setting up a study. I think this was in about 1960, yeah, 62. Um, I've set up a study to look at the feasibility of collecting that type of information. Um, and when you read the read the files in the archives, you can see um, the complete pain that Gavithwaite was to this poor man. <laughs> uh, and, and he was constantly sending him back his drafts and saying, well, I don't really understand this. Uh, this needs further involvement. So come 1969, seven years later, he, he, he then at the Executive Council said, well, uh, yes, the, uh, the professor I've asked is having difficulties <laughs> coming to closure on on how we would do it and I you know I think that's because it's not really useful information to collect and so on so this yes this poor academic was uh, lined up to be the the fall guy uh, but Capitoid was, was and had a, had had a reason as as you as you as you pointed out which was he knew that GDP type data really came along with the New Deal and with uh, Keynes, and uh, he, he was convinced that uh, if you if you started collecting this data, then at various points people would say, "Well, GDP is doing very well; we can spend more," or "GDP is not doing very well; therefore, we must intervene." And therefore, we should spend more. Spend more. <laughs> um, Strangely he, enough, he, it's always spend more. He, yeah. he sort of therefore was very clear in his own mind about what the second order impact was of collecting the data. And so he said, well, I, I simply won't collect it. It doesn't affect anything. Uh, we will have the same policy, whether it says it's, you know, $1,000 higher or lower. So it, it, won't, it won't affect what we do as a government. Uh, so therefore, there's no point point collecting it. Uh, of course, once once he'd gone, uh, his successor gave way a little bit on that and started collecting the data uh, and... Uh, and that's the date we 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 end up with today. But uh, no, it's a fascinating point, and I think he was probably proved right, actually. Yeah, I have to. A lot of my listeners, or a lot of you out there, are uh, economics grad students and um, economists, practicing economists of various kinds. And I think it's a matter of complete faith in our profession that data and numbers are crucial for designing economic policy. And I'm somewhat sympathetic to that. I understand that. But I think we've neglected the reality that it also comes with a cost. And one of the costs is that GDP is one thing. It's not easy to measure. You can do the best you can. So many things we measure are measured poorly, inaccurately, in, in ways that are easily distorted. And um, it's a it's a complicated thing. It's not straightforward. I, I think it's probably a net good that we measure a lot of things in the U.S. economy, but it does come at a cost, and it does. it is a way that fuels uh, demand for interventionism and the data give it a sci- that demand a scientific patina. Mm, I think that's right. I, th- I think the, the existence of that type of data um, – uh, in a way, it must have the second order effect of people therefore wanting to manage it and influence it and do stuff with it. Um, and and obviously, the best answer would be you collect the data and you you're terribly careful about resisting those pressures. But being humans, that's not always possible. And actually, I think it's probably pronounced patina. But apologize for that. I want to read a couple of excerpts from the book or from Cowperthwaite's own words that I thought were so extraordinary. Um, I'll pause after each one, and you can uh, you can add footnote or, or caveat or whatever you'd like. Uh, yeah. The, the first is um, about attacks on uh, Chinese prepared to- uh, duties. That is yeah. Uh, yeah. tariffs on Chinese prepared tobacco. 
Cowperthwaite, this is from the book, Cowperthwaite's belief in reasonable tax rates was illustrated at the most micro level by a change he made the previous year to duties on Chinese prepared tobacco. He noted that his experiment in reducing the duty had increased the yield from $110,000 to $1.2 million. When the unofficials replied to the budget, Lee, one of the unofficials in the advisory committee, would underline the benefits of low tax rates. Quote, the reduction in the rate of duty has resulted in a tenfold increase in revenue. This gratifying result amply proves that a reasonable rate of duty rather than a high one ultimately brings in the revenue. It is sound policy to lay down a rate at which people could be induced to obey the law rather than to break it. So an aside here is you know, this is a uh, – a lot of people believe we cut tax rates, we'll raise more revenue. I don't think that's true in America at the current level of tax. But there is a level of tax, which if set high enough, a reduction can increase revenue. And through this mechanism – which is to get rid of the black market and have people make legal activities that are now taxable. Yeah, I mean, uh, Capitoy was extremely keen. I mean, he was a British civil servant, so he was he was extremely keen that people pay their taxes and uh, put a lot of effort into enforcement. Um, but in his head, the quid pro quo was that this is a level which uh, sort of created natural encouragement to uh, to do the right thing rather than to, to turn to the black market. And uh, I think time and time again when he uh, acted on these things he 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 had the result that you've just mentioned uh, i think it's also interesting he you know he your your gdp point coming back to that again i mean he would get a number of his ideas simply by wandering around and listening to people he he had a lot of friends uh, in the various communities chinese uh, asian indian and so on uh, british in in hong kong and he would listen to the issues that uh, were happening and would develop policy on that in many ways rather than and, and, and first principles he loved going back to first principles you know what why would someone behave the way they are and once he could work that out he could work out you know how to regulate or not regulate how to tax or not to tax um and i think you're right there's a there's hong kong is a story of having a very fast-growing revenues um, really across all of the major tax areas uh, at very well, relatively low levels of tax. The next example is from his uh, view of parking, which I enjoyed immensely. <laughs> yes. Here's the quote. He was concerned that providing government car parking spaces at below their full cost – would stifle the construction of private parking. Indeed, he was worried that that was already happening. And he wondered if it was preventing private capital from meeting the needs of the growing car-owning public, noting that, quote, one trouble is when government gets into a business, it tends to make it uneconomic for anyone else. You, you continue, on this relatively minor issue, Copperswaite combined a fairly detailed knowledge of the economics of car parking with some insights into the effect of government involvement. He had no problem applying his broader framework to specific issues. For him, it was clear that the government did not need to involve itself in car parking. And if it did, because of the owner, its ownership of land, then a full market price should be charged. Yeah. I mean, that was his way of dealing with things. He would he would really, you know, he had a set of philosophy that I think derives from uh, classical economics and uh, understanding uh, why people behave uh, the way they do. And 
he would then apply it in great detail, whether that be car parking. I, I remember in one budget, he started going on about um, a sports facility that they were building. Yep. It was a completely trivial you know, thing where he, he clearly had some feel for the numbers of what it cost to build and different spec levels that you could have. I mean, he, he, he dived into these things, uh, but he, he was really always trying to get a bottom-up sense of the underlying microeconomics, if you like. You know, how does this work? How do people pay? What are the costs? Um, you know, if the government's involved, what happens? How does it distort incentives? How does it distort capital allocation? He, he, he was very interested in, in trying to work his way through that, uh, however small the issue. I mean, sometimes, obviously, it was much bigger issues on broad macroeconomic themes, but, but he was absolutely happy delving down into car parking <laughs> and the like. And then the last quote, because this is just such an example of the economic way of thinking. Uh, I regard education as a good thing, but we must still ask what a good thing costs, how much of it we can afford, and who's going to pay for it. Yeah. Can you imagine a politician (laughs) (laughs) today trying that line? Yeah. Uh, They'd be accused of not caring about the children. Um, Exactly. uh, Now, as as you mentioned, uh, Copperthwaite's successor did start to measure some aspects trying to measure GDP and income. Uh, people have gone back and reconstructed those measures. And there's been an enormous transformation in, in Hong Kong's standard yeah. of living over this period and subsequent to it. Uh, whether you want to give Copperthwaite's policies credit for some of that, for setting a tone that his successors, even though they deviated to some extent, they still kept something of the same tone. Mm. But one of the things you don't have is, I mean, you have a lot of, we have a lot of data on average income. Uh, The problem is that average income is, of course, distorted by people at the high end. So you can have some incredibly wealthy financial folks coming into Hong Kong, pulling up the average, whereas the median might be stagnant or or not moving at all. Do we have any information about what's happening to the poorest people? Because, again, when I think of of Friedman, I think Milton Friedman's defense of Hong Kong, his claim was that the the poorest people thrived through through the policies that we're talking about. And yet we don't seem to have any real measure of that. Is there any measure of that? Um, the only the only data I know of is that if you look at, I think it's the bottom decile versus the top decile in Hong Kong, uh, that's a factor of 18, I think, uh, which is roughly the same as Singapore. I believe that's 16 for the US. So it, it is a probably a slightly less equal society than the US by a, by, by a bit. Um, yeah, I think I think that one of the things though that is very important, uh, probably for someone who wants to dig into that a bit, is to understand housing costs, um, because one of the most interesting elements where Hong Kong has deviated from the free market approach is in housing, and um, about half the population in Hong Kong is housed in government-built and run. Uh, accommodation. And for the people who live there, they spend on average about 9% of their income on housing. Whereas if you were living in the UK, you would be spending two or three times that amount uh, of as a percent of your income. So there's a very in- interesting issue of how they've uh, through government intervention, uh, made housing much more affordable for many in society. So you'd need to you'd need to build that in. But but I agree that would be a very interesting uh, further further piece of analysis to look at. So I'm not so interested in the inequality. Uh, I'm more interested in in the potential 
for improvement among the poorest people. And my, my impression is, is that their opportunities did improve dramatically over this time period, but it oh, could yeah. be biased. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I just to add a ironic note to our previous, and I've used the word ironic, I think it's my third time, apologize for that, but um, the last data that I saw in the United States, the top fifth earned 17 times, the average okay. income of the top fifth was 17 times the uh, average of the bottom fifth. Okay. However, and this is why uh, Copperthwaite didn't trust the collection of numbers. That's a very large gap, obviously. Uh, you could debate whether it's good or bad, but it still seems kind of large. I suspect it's larger than it was in 1920, say, in the United States, but 100, say, 100, roughly 100 years ago. However, this is shocking. Um, in the average house, this is household income. The top fifth has. I'll let listeners think for a second. Guess how many earners there are in the top fifth of the household income distribution? Well, it turns out it's over two. It's two point in the data I remember now. Uh, it was 2.04. Well, how could you have more than two earners? Well, you have my high school uh, son who did some work over the summer, so he adds a little bit to the household income. Not very much, but he still adds something. So there's about – but it's over two mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> because most okay. of the people in the top fifth have – a husband and wife, and who are – they're working. Uh, guess how many earners there are in the average household, typical household, in the bottom fifth? The answer there is about 0. 0.45. <laughs> it's less than one okay. because most of them are all elderly or young or retired or on welfare. They're single. They're not married. Um, so there's about five times the number of earners in the top than there yeah. is in the bottom. So if you correct for that, the top fifth to the bottom fifth isn't really 17. It's more like four mm. <laughs> or three. So it's um, – numbers are tricky. And just Well, your, your point has to be right. Though. You know, you need to, to, to make a claim on these sorts of things. You really need to dig into them in some detail because, uh, yeah, there'll be, there'll be effects like that. There'll be housing cost issues. There'll Huge be all point. sorts of things yeah. that you, 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 know, you would need to adjust or at least know about in order to be clear – uh, as to what the effect is, or people cycling in and out of the different different uh, quintiles and so on. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned the housing. I meant to bring it up. Um, did they charge for it? Oh yes, yeah. So so it's um, crazy. Given all the things you've said before, we've said before about his philosophy. Well, he he was he was that, that uh, they provided it for that they charged yes. for it. I understand, but that they built yes. they wouldn't let the private sector build housing for poor people is surprising. It is. It's very interesting, and and, and I can't I, I I can't quite get to the bottom of my own mind about this, which is there, there clearly was a market failure uh, in the provision of housing prior to some. There were some fires in some shanty towns um, uh, in the in the uh, late fifties and early sixties, and that really caused the government to say, well, we have we have to deal with this. From a safety perspective, not just from an economic perspective, uh, we, you know we can't have you know uh, this level of uh, people being exposed to danger like that. So, so actually, a lot of the momentum was a political one around safety. But the way that Cooperthwaite and and others around him sort of created is they said, well, we we therefore need to build houses that are very low cost. Um, so they tend to be quite small, particularly the early versions in the fifties and sixties, yeah, tiny and tiny. Not quite small. <laughs> because I remember yeah, the square footage is... It's tiny. Yeah. It's like a... But, but, 
Yeah, but but um, but also at a rate and at a at a cost that uh, people can afford to pay, and in in Capitalweight's my uh, insistence earns a return on capital <laughs> that the government has put in. So that that squaring that circle uh, constrains you quite a lot into what type of housing you can build. But I can't quite work out why the market failure was so great that that has that was and has pretty much remained. Um, driven by government. Uh, there's a huge private uh, construction industry in Hong Kong uh, building expensive accommodation. And when you look at some of these charts about where's the most expensive place to live, to live in the world, Hong Kong is often towards the top. But that's not true if you live in government accommodation. Uh, so it's, again, one of those problems with data, which is you know, what, what people are measuring is, is market constructed market uh, built. And you talk to people in Hong Kong. I mean, I'm, I've been in Hong Kong uh, in the archives and so on. I, I often ask people about the housing and they, they think it's brilliant because they end up spending um, really quite modest amounts of income. The, the average is 9% across the whole estate uh, uh, of their income being spent on housing, which is which is uh, yeah, pretty, a pretty good price, as you say, for quite small, quite small apartments. Yeah, I mean, Given his philosophy, you'd think he would have um, – I assume that those, that tragedy, which I remember reading about in the book, of those fires created a tremendous clamor to, quote, do something. Yeah. Uh, one thing to do is to build housing, which is going to eventually, as Carpet would have admitted, going to create an impression that there's a market failure because as the government crowds out all the private incentive to build uh, low-income, cheap, small housing – Mm. Uh, it's going to be easy to say that <laughs> there's a failure, but who knows yeah. which what would have happened if he'd stepped back and instead put, say, fire regulation or he may have felt that was in would not look sufficiently strong enough. I don't know. There must have been a a lot of dinner table discussions in the Cowperthwaite household about that, that um, break with his philosophy. And, and I think on, on that one, because it was so dramatic, it was a, a fire, a lot of people got killed. It was on Christmas yeah. Day in uh, 1953, I think. And and so because of that, I think the political pressure, as you're saying, would have been very high. So I don't think it was you know, his, his own decision. He, he, he spent a lot of time trying to say, well, we need to be clear about what the standards and sizes and costs are. We need to earn a return on capital. Um, I don't think he would have led with that policy. Uh, I think that was probably more led by the governor and various other other, other people. Um, so he was clear he wanted to try and maintain the economic incentives in that sector as much as possible. Uh, but but I, I agree, it's really it's so large and so successful that it is quite interesting as to which is the chicken and the egg, the market failure or the government involvement. Um, it's it's clearly very big uh, and substantial. Yeah. But having said that, as, as you point out in the book, through most of this time period, uh, government expenditure on actual things as opposed to transfers on goods and services is is under 10%, if I remember yeah. correctly. It's about that. Which is a fraction still. But it, it's an interesting it's an interesting exception. The other thought I had on the poverty issue and the impact of the growth on the poorest people there is migration. Mm-hmm. The fact that so many people wanted to live there suggests it was yeah. a pretty pleasant place. And they weren't mostly rich people in the early days. They were poorest of the poor, a lot of them. And they felt this was a place they could get ahead, presumably, although the housing may have helped. Who knows? 
I think, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the, the vast uh, influx of um, refugees and so on would go into jobs like textiles. Uh, so, so very much low paid, um, three, two, two or three shifts, often three shifts uh, work. Uh, and it, that was uh, absorbing the people. It was one of the issues that Cooper White and the others were concerned about around, you know, well, if we have industries like that, that's great because, you know, that'll help deal with um, people who are coming, as you say, the rel relatively by and large poor people, because we're talking about millions of people here. And one last thing on the economy. When, I, I, as I was reading the book, I happened to come across a, a GIF on Twitter of, um, it's about five seconds long, if I remember correctly. I'll try to find it and link to it uh, with the episode. It's a it's a uh, it's a high speed animation of the transformation of one vista of Hong Kong. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In it, in the first vista, it's probably over maybe 1960 to the present, roughly. In the first vista, it looks like you're looking at a large, an enormous swamp or almost waste some kind of wasteland, some kind of uh, sea area, low swampy area, and and by the present, in the five seconds you watch it, it's transformed into this ridiculous modern um, cornucopia of high-rise buildings, apartments, mm. presumably, and other and office buildings. And how much of that do you want to give to Mr. Mr. Cowperthwaite, that transformation? Of course, some of it comes from Chinese growth over this time period, the Chinese economy waking up uh, in its modernization, its somewhat capitalist bent – the investment from around the world coming in, pouring in there. Um, but Cowperthwaite leaves in 1971. I, I'm sure it looked better in 1971 than it did in 1951 or 1961 when he became finance secretary. But the last 40 years are really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they they are extraordinary, but they are a continuation. And actually, one of the things that I, I found interesting is that um, if you follow through after Capithwaite has left, uh, his, his philosophy is still embedded in uh, many budgets and uh, macroeconomic policies and the like, even to the current day. So you find that um, at various points, um, financial new financial secretaries will say, well, I'm, I'm absolutely going to stick to things like, for example not running a budget deficit. I'm I'm going to keep the state relatively small and taxation levels are not higher than they were when he left. So I think he, he created such a success, if you like, that it's tended to mean that financial secretaries do refer, new financial secretaries do refer back to that and, and, and argue that they are continuing that. And they still, in Hong Kong, have a relatively uh, low state involvement. It's slightly higher than when Capitholite left, but it's it's not materially. And I did um, during the course of of uh, working with this book, I did talk to the current financial secretary of Hong Kong, and he he would say there's great continuity between the policies that uh, Capitholite uh, pursued at his time and the ones that are being pursued now. So so I think that is one of the fascinating things about it. It's a 50 year a relatively consistent set of economic policies uh, and the results thereof that uh, we can we can look at. Um, and if anything, the growth rate is slightly lower as a percentage, but you might well expect that uh, in the last 20 years than it was in the in the 20 years around Campethwaite. But uh, but I would tend to focus very much onto the continuity. If you if you read a budget, and I have done this, read read the latest budget. Uh, for Hong Kong, it could have been written by Capithwaite. Uh, much of it is similar. There's more of a nod to uh, doing dealing with some of the social issues, but the, some of the fundamental 
beliefs about taxation and uh, government expenditure and deficit financing and the like, they're quite similar to where they were in the 1960s and 70s. So let's close with that related question to that, which is in 1997, uh, somewhere east of Suez becomes <laughs> – there's yeah. nothing east of Suez after this. Uh, they hand over the the uh, territory to the Chinese. What changed legally, if anything? Obviously, a lot. And what changed actually, to the best of your ability to summarize that? Well, I, I, I think what uh, happened in 1997 is obviously full sovereignty reverted to uh, China, uh, but China agreed um, to have what they called two, you know, one 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 uh, country, two systems, and said that for a period of fifty years, the nature of the Hong Kong uh, economy and society uh, would have some protection. And there were a set of protections laid out uh, in what was called the Basic Treaty. Uh, and in theory, those will run for, for 50 years. And they include things, for example, like uh, uh, conservative uh, or, or cautious uh, fiscal policy, um, uh, low taxation rates. So they're embedded in the Basic Treaty. Um, What's sort of going to be interesting over the over 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 the and, and I guess we're twenty years into that fifty year uh, transition. Um, you know, China may well want to get have greater convergence, and depending on how they do that and what they do, it'll be interesting to see how that affects um, the policies and therefore the economic outcomes for for Hong Kong. Uh, but in in principle, it, it you know it, it's it it should retain much of its characteristics that it had uh, over the period we've been talking about. My guest today has been Neil Monnery. His book is Architect of Prosperity. Neil, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.